Children, let me begin by saying something to you. There's a whole book of the Bible devoted to teaching young people, children, about wisdom. It's called the book of Proverbs. And in the book of Proverbs, a father is teaching his sons and his daughters about how to become wise. And here's the verse I want you to remember this morning. Children, here's the main idea that we're going to be talking about this morning. It's this. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. (laughs) The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. That is Proverbs chapter four, verse seven. God wants you. And this goes to little children and adult children. We need wisdom. We need wisdom. And the wise knows that you need more wisdom. So we should make it our priority to get wisdom. And this morning we have an amazing privilege of getting wisdom, heavenly wisdom from above. From God's holy word. That's found for us in James chapter one. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter one. We're going to be looking at verses five to twelve. And in this wisdom from above, James teaches us something amazingly helpful. He teaches us this morning the answer to this question. How does a wise person respond when they go through trials? Whether you're a young person or an old person, you will have trials in this life. So how do you respond as a wise person to trials? We don't have to wonder. James gives us wisdom from above that will help us to get wisdom. So if you're following along in the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 1011. I'm going to begin reading in verse one to remind us of the context. This is what scripture says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double minded man unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed 
is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. How does a wise person respond when they go through trials of various kinds? James tells us three things. Number one, the wise person asks in the right way. The wise person asks in the right way. That's verses five to eight. Number two, the wise person boasts in the right thing. The wise person boasts in the right thing. Verses nine to 11. And number three, the wise person perseveres or presses on for the right prize. The wise person perseveres. Children, when I say persevere, I mean pressing, pressing on. The wise person perseveres for the right prize. That's verse 12. And my prayer for all of us is that God would make us all wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So, number one. How does a wise person respond when they go through trials? The first thing they've got to do is the wise person asks in the right way. Look again at verses five to eight. What we find in these verses, James calls upon his readers to ask God for wisdom. When you go through trials, if you're a wise person, the first thing you need to do is ask God For wisdom, look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. When you go through trials, they are very disorienting. Sometimes you don't know what to do next and you are tempted to rely upon your own strength, to rely upon your own understanding to lean on your own understanding. And what James is calling you to do amidst your trials is to immediately go and ask God, the only wise God, to give you wisdom through prayer. Wisdom, what is wisdom? When we talk about wisdom, I'm not talking about the farmer's almanac. I'm not talking about fortune cookie, mantra-like statements. There's a, such a thing as worldly wisdom. You realize this? You can ask people who are not Christians and they'll give you wisdom. But 99% of the time, it's not wisdom that's from above. You realize this? It's worldly wisdom. It's earthly wisdom. Over in chapter 3, this is what James says about worldly wisdom. He says... This is not, this is James 3.15. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. He goes on to talk about the worldly wisdom produces all kinds of bad fruit. That's not the kind of wisdom we need when we're going through trials. James says, if you're going through a trial, Christian, ask God to give you wisdom. And notice how he bolsters this this request that we're going to make. Look what he says about God. This is wonderful. Let him ask God who gives 
generously to all without reproach. Our God and Father is a wise God and he is a generous God. He gives generously to all who ask him for wisdom. He is not annoyed when you ask him for wisdom. Did you know that you can ask God for wisdom every single day? And he doesn't, it's not going to get to like day 10. He's going to say, hey, I'm, I'm done with giving you wisdom, right? He gives generously to all notice without reproach. He's not going to reproach you for asking him for wisdom. He gives wisdom to his children without any reservation, abundantly, without any second thoughts. And I love it in our older translations, some of the Greek lexicons define this word generously. It says it has the idea of this of a singleness of mind. God has a single one track mind when his kids come and ask him for wisdom. He just delights to give wisdom to his children. It's wholehearted. It's not halfway. It's wholehearted. Have you ever asked somebody for something and they give it to you? But you just the look on their face, it's like they don't really want to give me that, right? It's kind of half-hearted. With the, you can just tell on their face, right? James is saying God is not giving half-heartedly to his children. If you ask him for a fish, he's not going to give you a serpent, right? He's a good father. He delights to give good gifts to his children. We saw this in Matthew chapter 7. Ask him, seek him, knock, and it will be opened. So, Christian, in your trials, the wise person knows that they don't have the wisdom to get through it. And the wise person turns to the Father and asks Him to give wisdom from above. So, take your trials to the Lord, cast all of your anxieties upon Him, and ask Him for wisdom. One of the primary ways that you acquire wisdom is through prayer. The prayerless Christian is the foolish Christian. What what does James say in verse 5? What are you supposed to do when you need wisdom? Ask him. And James chapter 4 verse 2 says you don't have because you do not ask. If you're not praying to the Lord for wisdom, here's the newsflash. You won't get wisdom. So you need to ask him in prayer for wisdom. Do you remember King Solomon's children? Remember King Solomon? Solomon was the son of who? David. And you remember when Solomon became king, he became king over a vast kingdom. And he was starting out as king and he needed help, right? And so God asked Solomon, he says to Solomon, King Solomon, ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. And he could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for power and authority. He could have asked for anything. Do you you remember what King Solomon asked? King Solomon asked God for wisdom. Give me, I need wisdom and understanding. And God answers his prayer and he gives him wisdom. But James doesn't just tell us what to ask for. He wants us to ask for wisdom in the right way. Look again at verses six to eight. He tells us positively and negatively how we're supposed to go about asking for wisdom. Positively, verse six, 
Let him ask in faith and then negatively with no doubting. Do you see that? Let him ask in faith with no doubting. What what does he mean? First, we know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse six. So we've got to believe that God exists. We've got to believe that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. We have to believe that he's going to hear our prayer. And so we ask him in faith. But Paul, but James, excuse me, is going to make clear in the rest of his letter. He's going to spend much of his letter describing and illustrating and unpacking what he means by the word faith. And you know, in the letter of James, faith is not something that's just cognitive belief, right? The demons believe in God and they shudder. That's not the kind of faith that he's talking about. He's not talking about demon faith. He's not talking about that phony kind of faith that says one thing, but then does the other. James says in the rest of the letter, as he defines what faith looks like, what genuine faith actually is, it's not fake faith, it's not phony faith, it's this, real faith, real faith asks in the hopes of receiving wisdom because that real faith intends to put that into practice. Faith without works is what? Dead. Genuine faith trusts God's word and then does what God says. So let me give an illustration. The person who asks God for wisdom but really has no intention of doing what he says is not really asking in faith. You're just asking God to get a second opinion. How many times, maybe this has happened to you, it certainly happened to me, someone comes to you for counsel. They're in a trial. And they come and they ask for wisdom. They share their struggles And then you pray with them and then you go to the word of God and you point to situations and and passages in the scriptures that are exactly what the person's going through. And God in his word says, this is how you're supposed to respond. And the person looks at you and says, "Okay, well, I guess I'm just going to keep praying for wisdom. That person is not really wanting wisdom because if God says it in his word, then it's case closed, right? We've got it. And what James is getting at is we're to ask in faith. And he says, with no doubting, with no doubting, older translations render it this way, with no wavering. What does that mean? Wavering. Wavering is somebody who's unsteady who's wobbly. Wavering is somebody who goes back and forth between two opinions. A waverer is somebody who is weighing two courses of action and they're unsteady. And so when James says, ask in faith with no doubting, no wavering, no hesitation. When God gives you that wisdom, you don't hesitate, you don't waver, you believe it and you put it into practice. That's what he's getting at. And we know that's what he's getting at by the illustration. Look what the illustration is. Verse six How does he illustrate the waverer? How does he illustrate the one who is doubting? Look what he says, verse six. The one who doubts, the one who wavers, 
is like a wave that's driven and tossed by the wind, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8, he's a double-minded man, a two-souled man. He's unstable in all of his ways. Christian, James is not saying in these verses that your faith must be utterly pristine and perfect and without a molecule of sin or unbelief. Because if that molecule of unbelief is there, God's not going to answer your prayers. That's not what James is saying. There's a reason we end our prayers with in Jesus name, right? You realize we don't say, and I come to you in the, in my name, right? That's not how we pray, right? We pray in Jesus name because even our best prayers have to be washed in the blood of the lamb. That's not what James is saying. What James is saying is if you're approaching God as a two souled man, as a double minded man, as a double minded woman, and you've got one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And you're like, well, I'm just going to wait and see what the wisdom looks like before I decide to put it into practice. James says, you, you can expect this. You will get nothing from the Lord. He's not going to throw his pearls to swine. There was a great illustration of this in a book called Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, if some of you've read this, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, John Bunyan talks about a character in the book and he's very clear about where he stands with these people. There was a character called Mr. Two Tongues and Mr. Facing Both Ways, right? They're facing this way and they're facing this way. They've got a forked tongue because they're double-minded. They, 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 they say, I want wisdom. And then they hear the wisdom like, ah, I need a second opinion. Well, that you're facing both ways. And, and he says, that will show itself, that spiritual instability will show itself not only in your prayers, it will reveal itself in all aspects of your life. You will be unstable in all of your ways. Over in chapter four, this is what James says. This is how a double-minded person needs to respond. Instead of going to the Lord and asking him for, for, for wisdom, the double-minded person needs to do this. Flip over to James chapter four. Look at verse eight. What does James tell the double-minded person to do this morning? And maybe that's you. This is what James is saying. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. If you're the double-minded person this morning, James has got a hard word for you, but it's actually a good word. James is calling you to repent. He's calling you to humble yourself before the Lord. He's calling you to turn from your unbelief. He's calling you to confess your sins. He's calling you to come to the Lord Lay aside your pride, cast yourself on his mercy, and he will exalt you in the gospel. That's what James is calling to you to do this morning.
God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So Christian, when you come to the Lord in your trials, you ask him for wisdom, believing his word. One practical thing for you, if you're a Christian, one way to get wisdom in your life every day is to read the Proverbs. How many days of the, of the month are there? There's about 30 or 31, right? How many Proverbs are there? 31. You could read a proverb every day and ask God for wisdom in that chapter that you can put into practice in your life. But most importantly, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Even in our trials, when we ask him for wisdom and he speaks to us through his word and prayer as he brings the scriptures to bear in our lives, we've got to remember this. He has given us perfect wisdom by giving us his only son. He has given us his dearly beloved son who is wisdom incarnate, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Brothers and sisters, behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. Jesus Christ. We're told in 1 Corinthians, God has made him unto us as wisdom from God. We're told that Jews, that that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. So in your trials, ask for wisdom and keep looking to Jesus Christ by faith. That's the main thing that James wants us to see in these opening verses. How does a wise person respond when they go through trials? The wise person asks for wisdom in the right way. Number two, the wise person also boasts in the right thing. Look again at verses nine to 11. James calls us in these verses to boast in the right thing. He has two groups of people in mind as he writes verses 9 to 11. You can see it. He has the poor and he has the rich. The poor and the rich. Did you realize no matter how much money you have or how much money you don't have, trials still come. We know those of us maybe who have less than we do are going through trials. And no matter how much money you have, you will still go through trials. The trials come into the life of someone regardless of their adjusted gross income. Okay, So James is writing to believers in Jesus Christ who are going through various trials. Some of them are wealthy. Some of them are poor. It's pretty clear from the letter the majority of the people that James is writing to would be poor. And so James is writing to Jewish believers, we know from verse one, who are scattered throughout the Mediterranean area because of the persecution that erupted because of the martyrdom of Stephen. James, who was the pastor of the Jerusalem church, is writing to these Christians who've had to leave and flee for their lives from Jerusalem. And now they're scattered. They're refugees in a foreign land. They are surrounded by strangers. They had to leave their homes Many of them are most likely materially poor. And that's who James begins by addressing. Look at verse nine. He he says something striking. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. 
Your translation may say, let the brother of humble circumstances, let the brother of humble means. He's talking about those who are not just financially poor, according to worldly standards, but he's also writing to those who are of low social status. Uh, People who would be open to being oppressed because they're powerless. But notice in verse 9, what else does he call this lowly person? He calls them a what? A brother. Do you see that? Lowly brother. Brother, that's just a word for a believer. So he's writing to poor Christians. At the time that James would have been writing this letter, according to Acts chapter 11, something else happened in this region. A famine occurred. So I want you to just put yourself in the, in the, the situation of his poor readers, okay? Many of them were poor, but think about this. These are refugees who've been scattered in the dispersion because of persecution. And then just when things can't get any worse, there's a famine. Now, over in chapter two, when James writes about this hypothetical situation, he says in chapter two, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in what daily food, he's, this is a real situation in their face. This isn't a hypothetical. He's telling them how to respond to a lowly brother who needs food. So what are they supposed to do? What is this brother who's lowly, who's poor supposed to do? Look at verse nine. He says, Let the lowly brother, the lowly sister, boast. What? (laughs) Boast? Your Bible may say glory. What are they supposed to boast or glory in? His exaltation. What does this mean? James is calling upon his poor brothers and sisters in Christ to exalt, to boast to glory and how God has lifted them up. Take your Bibles, flip over to chapter two of James. He gives a perfect commentary on this verse. Look at chapter two, verse five. This is a perfect commentary on verse nine. How has God lifted up or exalted The poor brother or sister, verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which God has promised to those who love him? What is James doing? James is writing to these struggling Believers who are scattered, who are poor. Maybe they don't have enough daily bread themselves. And James is reminding them that God has actually exalted them in Christ. He's reminding them that they trust in the one who was despised by the world. They trust in the one who was rejected by men. And he says, remember the one who had no place to lay his head. You have identified with him. You have trusted in him. And God, through the gospel, has elevated you who are poor in the eyes of the world. 
to a position in the kingdom over which all the kings of the earth with pity you can look down upon. That's what James is saying. Glory in this, boast in this. Then he turns his attention to the rich brother. Look Look at verse nine. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, verse 10, and the rich in his what? Are y'all going to wake up in his what? Humiliation. Now, if you'll notice in verse 10, the word boast and the word brother don't show up in the ESV. Do you see that? So don't look at me. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation. You see that? There's no verb supplied in verse 10. And the word brother is, is is, is not supplied either. For that reason... Some Christians interpret this passage to mean that that James is referring to poor believers and then rich unbelievers. Does that make sense? Because the rest of the letter, James is going to have some really harsh things to say to rich unbelievers who are persecuting these readers. James chapter two, verse six James chapter five, verses one to six, there were clearly rich unbelievers who were oppressing, blaspheming and attacking uh, the poor readers of his letter. And for that reason, many people will read this and say, "Okay, well, he's talking to Christians who are poor. And then he turns his attention to to rich unbelievers. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. Just from a syntactical standpoint, the reason he doesn't repeat the verb and and the the word brother is because it's assumed from verse nine. He's not referring to rich unbelievers. He's referring to rich believers. And I think he's going to make that clear as we go along. Um, Over in chapter four, there are some folks in the congregation who are well off. In chapter four, take your Bibles, flip over to chapter four. Look what he says in verse 13. Not everybody that he's writing to who are believers are poor. Look at verse 13. Come now, come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a what? Profit. He's talking to traveling businessmen who are in the church. He says, don't, he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. For what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then what? Vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see what he's saying? He's writing to wealthy businessmen who are traveling around in the area who are making their business plans or making their profit plans. He says, listen, it's great to plan, but remember, it's only if the Lord wills. And he says, because you got to remember, even if you're a wealthy traveling businessman, your life is just a what? It's just a vapor. You're here one minute and you're gone the next. You don't know what tomorrow may bring. Now flip back to chapter one. He's going to give the rich believers the same lesson in chapter one. Look what he says. Verse 10, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because... Like a flower of the grass, he will what? Pass away. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls, its beauty perishes. So will also the rich man fade away even in the midst of his pursuits. Other translations render that last word even in the midst of his business travels. I think that's what he's getting at. So you're thinking, what does all this mean? Here's what it means. Children, listen up. The richest person to ever live in our country, in this country, was a guy named John D. Rockefeller. He was worth, according to inflation and according to a source I have called Wikipedia, it said this. On May 23rd, 1937, when he died, listen, he was worth $418 billion. The richest person in the world right now is the guy who owns Amazon. He's worth $138 billion. Rockefeller was worth $418 billion. And children, listen to me. Do you know how much money he left behind when he died? All of it. He left everything behind. And that's what James is saying. When you are going through trials and when he's talking to the rich, you may think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm glad I'm not rich. Worldly speaking, every single one of us in this room is rich. <laughs> if you've got clothes on your back and a roof over your head and you know where your next meal's coming from, you're rich. <laughs> Most of you did not walk here. <laughs> Most of you drove here. If you have a car, guess what? You're rich according to the worldly standards. But listen to me. When you go through your trials, don't look to your wealth. That's, not, that's a weak read to lean on, brothers and sisters. Your wealth will not get you through your trials. Because we are all fading away. We're all going to die. That's why James quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. All flesh is like grass. We're all going to perish. You need to go to the Lord for wisdom and depend upon him to get you through the trials. Death is the great leveler. So James is not saying, well, only rich people die. No, he's saying everybody dies, including rich people. Therefore, who is someone in the Bible we can think of that had a lot of wealth and then lost everything and still depended on the Lord? Job comes to mind. What happened to Job? Remember this? He was a blameless man. He was he was a wealthy man. He lost nearly everything through his trials. And what did he declare? He declared this naked. I came from my mother's womb. And he says, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, he understood that his wealth was not. The crutch that was going to get him through his trials. He had to look to the God who gives and the God who takes. The God who is the only wise God. So let me ask you. How does a wise person respond when they're going through trials? They boast in the right thing. They don't boast in their wealth. They don't boast in their riches. They boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. They boast in the one who was made poor for their sake so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Earlier in the service, we read from Jeremiah chapter nine. James is getting 
his teaching, he, he, would, he would get an F for, uh, for stealing uh, if he turned in this to a teacher, right? Because he's just borrowing from something else that someone else has already written. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 9 one more time. Doesn't this sound just like James? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, declares the Lord. Your boast in your trials is that you know God, that you know the God who is providing for you, who will care for you, and therefore you boast in the right thing. Last thing, last thing, number three, the wise person perseveres for the right prize. Look at verse 12. James concludes this whole section in verse 12 with a glorious promise. Look at verse 12. James writes this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you don't need just to ask, what is the writer saying? You need to also ask, what is the writer doing? I want you to just notice what James is doing. When Christians are going through trials of various kinds, maybe you're going through one this morning, it's really easy to just stop looking at the Lord and begin to just fixate on your trials. The other thing that we're tempted to do is to not lift our heads and look beyond our trials at what will come in the future because the trial feels so hard. And so what James, as a great pastor, he's our visiting minister for the next few months. James, the pastor, he reaches down, as it were, and lifts the weary head of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He lifts their weary, tear-faced faces. And he lifts their gaze up and he points to the end of their trials. How many times in your trials have you said, when is this going to end? Have you ever asked that? When's this going to end? Is this ever going to end? I don't know. I don't know how much longer I can make it. When is it going to end? And that's a great question to ask. And you know what James does? He points to the end. When's it going to end? Well, look what it says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test. Look at this promise. He will receive The crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James is not talking about a crown that an earthly monarch would wear. Some of you think of Queen Elizabeth wearing a crown. That's not the it's not a it's not a crown with a bunch of jewels in it. This word is used throughout the New Testament. It's the crown that a victor would receive from a race. Someone runs a race and they win the race and they receive a laurel crown on their head. 
And James calls this crown the crown of life, which I understand to be the crown of life, which means eternal life. So at the end of our trials, brothers and sisters, those who remain steadfast and persevere will receive eternal life. Just think about that for a minute. No more trials, no more sin, no more suffering, eternal life. This crown, this prize, it's not earned by our efforts. Did you notice that? It's not we do something and then therefore God is obligated to give us something. Did you notice that this prize rests upon God's unbreakable promise? Did you see that? Who gets the prize? Look what he says. Which God has what? Promised to those who love him. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion even unto the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who promises to give us eternal life. And so let me encourage you this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this promise of eternal life is held out to you if you will believe the good news of Jesus Christ. The one who lived and who died and who rose again from the dead, who offers the world forgiveness for anyone who will trust in him. And that is a promise that's extended to you this morning if you don't know Jesus Christ. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, the promise is held out of eternal life. And you remember, this is the very thing Jesus said on the night he was betrayed. Remember what he told his disciples? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms and I go away to prepare a place for you. And then he said, I go away to prepare a place for you and I will come again and take you to myself and where I am, you may be also. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have what? Eternal life. He promises the crown of life to those who believe. Christian, in your sufferings, you look forward to the promise of what is to come. And you look back at what Christ did for you to purchase that promise. The Lord of life, the Lord of glory, suffered in your place For your sins on the cross. The Lord of glory paid the penalty that you deserved. The Lord of glory died in your place so that you might enjoy eternal life. The Lord of glory wore a crown of thorns so that one day, He might bestow upon your head the crown of life. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. What is the end of wisdom? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
We love because he first loved us. Do you love him? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your precious promises to us. You promise to give us wisdom if we ask. You promise, oh Lord, that you have exalted us and you've provided everything we need for life and for godliness. You promise us eternal life. You hold that before our eyes, even in the midst of our trials. Lord, help us to believe your promises. We confess our unbelief. We pray that you would help our unbelief. And we pray that we would walk step by step today and tomorrow and as long as you lend us breath until that day when we will find our trials ended and we will be in your presence, the one in in whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.